This episode of Live from CapTime's IdeaFest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from CapTime's IdeaFest. With the holidays upon us, we're bringing you even more conversations from this year's IdeaFest, which took place in September on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. On today's episode, looking back at 20 years of stem cells. 2018 marks the 20th anniversary of the breakthrough research paper on the isolation of human embryonic stem cells by researchers led by Jamie Thompson at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In this conversation, stem cell experts talk about the history of stem cells, the ongoing debate over the ethics of the field, and predictions about how the stem cell revolution will change the fields of medicine, biology, and more. Kelly Terrell, a science writer at the UW-Madison, moderated the talk. All right, let's dive in. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, with that, I'm going to introduce our great panel. Um, as hopefully, well, maybe you know, uh, but 20 years ago, this November, uh, is, was the anniversary, will be the 20th anniversary of Dr. Jamie Thompson's discovery of stem cell uh, and how to isolate stem cells. And so we thought this was a great opportunity um, with some of the individuals who have been part of, who were part of that and were there when, that, when it first happened to talk about stem cells, what we know, what we don't know, what's happened, what's turned out. Um, and so we have a fantastic panel to do that. Uh, and I'm going to quickly introduce them and let them uh, get on with the show. So we have Dr. Norman Faust. Uh, he's an emeritus professor, uh, doctor of pediatrics and bioethics at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health in the Department of Medical History and Bioethics. He chaired the committee that set the original um, guidelines for hum human embryonic stem cell research and the ethical uh, standards that those would be operated in. So he brings a great understanding and knowledge uh, and experience on those uh, ethical issues around stem cell research and other research issues here on campus. Um, Dr. Bill Murphy is the Harvey D. Spangler Professor of Biomedical Engineering, Professor of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation, and Director of the Forward Bio Institute at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, he's really on the cutting edge doing research involving stem cells, uh, and has, has a research lab that is working in stem cell area. Uh, he's won numerous awards and recognition for his work, um, and he's a great friend of the Wisconsin Alumni Association uh, and a great uh, willing to speak a lot for us in a lot of our events, so we appreciate uh, Dylan being here. Uh, and our moderator is my friend Kelly Terrell, uh, who is a, a scientist turned a science writer. Uh, she's a science writer here for the Office of University Communications at the university and covers a lot of these science issues. Um, and if you haven't seen the university's stories about origins, um, Kelly uh, and her colleagues ventured off to uh, Africa about a year ago and did an amazing uh, reporting and stories around the origin topics. So look that up or track Kelly down for her great work as well. So with that, I will introduce Kelly Terrell. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And thank you, everybody, for being here today. We are extraordinarily excited to celebrate 20 years since Jamie Thompson's discovery. He published a paper in Science on November 6, 1998, that described for the first time the isolation and culture of human embryonic stem cells. Um, it was a serendipitous find. 
Dr. Thompson was actually interested in saving endangered species. So he became very interested in ways to, to create more material for great apes in a way that would help improve their numbers. And what ended up happening was this major discovery. And as a science writer, we don't use breakthrough and discovery all that often, right? Science is a process. Most things happen incrementally. There tend not to be these big eureka moments. This was a eureka moment. This was a time in our scientific history that really changed. It changed the world, right? And here we are 20 years later celebrating that. Um, now, about 10 years after that discovery, uh, Dr. Thompson, with also another scientist in uh, Japan concurrently, discovered a way to uh, actually use adult cells to then have stem cells. So we no longer needed embryonic material for that purpose, though embryonic stem cells are still very necessary in a variety of studies. Um, Dr. Foss and I were talking earlier about how much we've sort of taken for granted uh, how, how big this, this finding was and how important it was. Um, but maybe we can start there with 20 years ago, um, where, where were you, Dr. Foss, and where, where did you think this was going to go? I was here. Um, I was in the medical school and, among other things, chair of the Institutional Review Board and Committee for uh, Protection of Human Subjects. <clears throat> and one of the first issues that came up with uh, Jamie's discovery was how could there be any oversight of it? Because it wasn't clear that uh, stem cells were people or humans, and therefore regulations that covered human subjects were sort of seemed not to be relevant. And there wasn't any other committee on campus that seemed to have authority over it, and yet it seemed to there should be some oversight. And so uh, the chancellor at the time created a committee specifically for this purpose, and I got to be chair of that committee. Any idea that we would end up where we are today? It was a big deal. Um, I mean, people forget what a big deal it was. Um, Terry Devitt uh, in your office uh, told me at the time that when Jamie's paper was published in um, Science that the university received more calls than any event in, in anyone's memory in the history of the university, including the Sterling Hall bombing. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of people from all over the world. So whether it was fear or hope or um, awe, um, People connected with it uh, very instantly. Great. How about you, Dr. Murphy? Where were you 20 years ago, and, and did you have any inkling then that you'd be here now? Well, I, I was a beginning graduate student, actually, at the University of Michigan. Um, so please don't hold that against me. And, you know, I was interested in how one might use materials to implant them into patients and encourage tissues to regrow. Um, so we didn't have a sense for where the feedstock was going to come from. Where were we going to get these cells to generate very large-scale tissues? And when this discovery was made, it obviously was a paradigm shift in the scientific community. It was a very, very big discovery. Um, but I have to admit, uh, being a scientist at the time, I had a very different viewpoint on the potential for this. Um, I was quite skeptical that there'd be any near-term um, thera therapies or medicines that would come from these stem cells, both because of the significant ethical questions that had come up at the time and because of the very significant technical challenges. These were very primitive cells. How would we turn them into the cells that could be useful to treat a disease or a disorder? There were so many questions that it seemed like we were decades off from there being a significant clinical impact. Um, so, so although it was 
tremendously exciting scientifically. My viewpoint at the time was that this is an exciting scientific discovery, not something that's going to be in the clinic in any foreseeable future. What makes stem cells unique is that they are basically naive cells and they can be manipulated into becoming any number of the 200 plus cells in the human body. And so it really did provide this opportunity to discover things that we had never been able to, to get at before, uh, as well as some of the, the clinical opportunities, which we'll talk about more today. But maybe Dr. Foster, you could talk a little bit about the ethical issues that came up in 1998 when Dr. Thompson made this find. Yeah, well, interestingly, they didn't come up in 1998. They came up in 1995. Um, one of the extraordinary things about Jamie's work was he came to us in the Human Subjects Committee um, to anticipating this worldwide reaction that there were, there were a host of ethical issues. And he wanted to know what to have that worked out before. This is four years before he published his first paper. And it's almost unprecedented in the history of science. As a matter of fact, I can't think of another example of a scientist asking for somebody else to tell him what the, and he didn't want it for defensive purposes to be able to sort of fend off criticism. He said, I want to do the right thing and tell me what the right thing is. So what the issues were, there were several. I mean, one, this was very much tied up in abortion issues and politics. So whether or not embryos were persons and whether they had moral status was a huge part of this debate. Um, President George W. Bush later uh, opined that they were, they were humans and uh, shouldn't be destroyed. Um, so that was, that was part of it. And related to that was whether it would be okay to create an embryo just for the purpose of research purposes and then later destroy it. So it was one thing to take embryos that were left over from in vitro fertilization programs. So it was another thing to create one um, and then there was cloning. I mean, the possibility of this technology people quickly saw could be a pathway to cloning human beings, and there was a lot of anxiety um, about that. And there was just one more issue um, that nobody anticipated, but that when our committee began um, looking into this, uh, we saw as one of the main issues, which was the possibility of um, creating life forms that previously were only science fiction. For example, creating laboratory animals with a human brain for the purpose of studying brain diseases like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's and so on. But the idea of having a rat or a goat in a cage with a human brain in it, and what would that animal, would it be thinking and feeling like a human? <laughs> and nobody knew the answer to that, obviously, nor did anybody know how to get the answer to that question because you doubt, that would, doubt doubtful that it would have speech, so you couldn't ask the goat, you know, how are you feeling today? Um, so th there, were, there were a range of traditional questions about the moral status of the embryo and then this brand new science fiction question. Yeah, it strikes me that it must have seemed to many people that it was science fiction sort of come to life and, and maybe a, something that we hadn't ever really considered before in any serious way. So given the ethical sensitivities, how did Dr. Thompson handle those at the time and, and how did UW handle those? Because I, you know... In my role, that's the kind of thing that could create a lot of work, right? 10,000 phone calls coming in on a, a single scientific topic. That's overwhelming. Well, as I mentioned, the amazing thing that he and the university did was to anticipate, if not 10,000 phone calls, at least some phone calls, and, and what those phone calls would be about. And I would say the, the university and Jamie were in 
complete readiness for any question that anybody had. We had thought that through. This committee had been appointed four years earlier. We had issued two reports, which were in the public domain. They identified all these ethical issues and why we thought uh, and the committee was a multidisciplinary group with scientists and ethicists and lawyers and community members and so on. Uh, and we anticipated literally every question that anybody raised and we thought we had a good answer to it. And they, those answers have stood the test of time. They, the guidelines that we wrote here became the guidelines that the National Academy of Sciences later adopted. Several of us had the opportunity to serve on that committee. And they became the national guidelines and then the international guidelines for stem cell research. So people often say that science runs ahead of ethics, and uh, I think that's often not true, and it definitely wasn't true here. We had the ethics worked out, and by worked out, meaning had answered, anticipated, and answered pretty much, well, it doesn't say everybody agrees with it or everybody thinks it's a great idea, but the vast majority of the public, including the politicians, mm -hmm. and including people who were pro-life and concerned about the moral status of the embryo, many of them came around when they listened to the arguments. Dr. Murphy, uh, at the time, what do you think the scientific community thought stem cells were going to be capable of? Were, was it being oversold at the time? Did you feel it was being oversold? What, what did we think would, would happen? Well, I think there's a distinction between principle and practicality, right? So in principle, we knew, based on Jamie's discovery, that these cells could self-renew, meaning that they could multiply essentially indefinitely. We could generate a giant feedstock of cells. And that, again, in principle, those cells could turn into all of the cell types that are present in the adult human body. That's very powerful and, in principle, means that there's tremendous potential. <clears throat> so I think that the public community, and even in some cases the clinical community, seized on that principle as potential for therapies that would come in weeks to months. Um, I think the scientific community saw it as practicality, given that these cells have so much potential to turn into different tissue types, it's a challenge to get them to choose a specific path and to become a cell type that's present in the adult human body. So, so the principle and the practicality were at odds with one another. And I think what's happened since, really, um, in the years immediately after, particularly here on campus, um, has been an interdisciplinary effort. It's meant that in order to turn the principle into practical success, generating cells that are useful for therapy or as tools, has involved engaging biologists who are making the early discoveries with clinicians and engineers and ethicists and business people. It's been this giant story of interdisciplinarity that's extended from that discovery. So I think that's where the practicality has come into play is on campuses that are cross-disciplinary like this one. Many of the innovations that extended were not these scientific innovations, they were these practical innovations. Given that we can generate these cells, how do we make heart muscle cells efficiently? That, that ends up being a major question and lots of people have to be involved in addressing that question. Yeah, I think the, the word you used was, it is a tool, right? And, and that's a lot of what science is, is developing tools to help us continue to answer, ask new questions, answer them, move on, create new questions. They come in and they kill you. Uh, there is a lot of overselling of biomedical technology, not just stem cells. And Jamie was never part of that. Anyone who knows him knows what a modest, self-assuming, unassuming uh, person he is. But he said from the very beginning, the, the, the benefit of this in the foreseeable future is not going to be curing cancer or Parkinson's disease. It's going to be understanding 
human differentiation, the great mystery of biology is how a single cell <laughs> turns into eyes and ears and hearts and kidneys and so on. The mystery of that, we can understand that and, how, and why it goes haywire. And second, as an instrument, as Bill said, to do other studies like to test new drugs in cell cultures uh, with from people with Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's or whatever. Instead of having to test these things in humans, you could test them in cells that had the same genetic disorder. And he saw those two uh, basic science sort of questions as, as being the major benefit. Obviously, down the road, everyone hoped, and we still do, that we'll find cures for these dread diseases. But he, he was the first to say that's going to be a long way off. One great example of this utility as a tool is in personalized medicine. <coughs> Many, I'm sure, who are here have heard of this concept that instead of developing a drug, for example, that treats an entire demographic of the population, we could develop a drug that treats one specific patient and is likely to affect a disease state in that patient. Well, that concept of personalized medicine has been around for decades. The idea of trying to treat an individual rather than a population what stem cells allow us to do is actually do just that. Take a cell from a patient, program it into a stem cell, make a tissue out of it, and then try to treat it with a drug. So it's an example of where the concept was there broadly, but the missing piece was the present, the ability to generate these stem cells. And that's just one of several examples where stem cells were sort of the linchpin that brought to bear these uh, broadly applicable concepts. So most of us know that science is not immune from politics. Um, when this discovery was made, there were some things going on politically. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, Dr. Foss? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, this was caught up in abortion politics, which is always going to be with us. Um, so there were a lot of politicians who thought embryos were persons and humans, and that killing an embryo for research purposes, even with the permission of the people who had created that embryo, that this was murder and, and should be prohibited. We had, had bills actually introduced into the Wisconsin legislature, um, um, which the purpose of which was to make this murder and to send people like Jamie to prison. Um, so it, it, it came very close to home. Um, I could say more about the Wisconsin politics of that. Um, but uh, it's interesting that once the... Um, possibilities and the potential became clear to many of even the pro-life politicians how quickly they turned around. So Orrin Hatch, for example, who's still a, a U.S. senator who was strongly um, pro-life and strongly opposed to stem cell research, when people started explaining to him that maybe someday we could cure Parkinson's disease or diabetes, and he started thinking about relative people in his family who had these disorders. He said, oh, well, in that case, uh, maybe it's not so bad. And he and uh, half a dozen other pro-choice senators flipped on the question of whether there should be federal funding for stem cell rate. Once they realized that it could affect them, um, suddenly they were not so obsessed about the moral status of the embryo. <laughs> And at the time that Dr. Thompson made the discovery, there was no such thing as federal funding for this work. Right. That was an unbelievable big deal. So uh, it, it, Jamie's paper was in 1998. George W. Bush was elected in 2000 and inaugurated in January 2001. Um, two things happened. Uh, one, uh, uh, George Bush was immediately, soon after his inauguration, was asked, 
every day. Uh, are you going to allow federal funding, uh, which was thought to be necessary? It was unclear that entrepreneurs were going to put big money into something whose payoffs might be decades down the road. So without federal funding for what was really basic research, it was unclear if this was going to go anywhere. And it's, it's amazing how much that, that was in the papers every day to the, like the Supreme Court discussion is now. It was like the big issue. And that went on for eight months. And President Bush's first public address was in August of his presidency. It was the first public address he gave it. And it was eagerly awaited for eight months. And he gave this speech in which he said uh, that the existing stem cell lines that Jamie had worked with could receive federal funding, but that no federal government would no longer be engaged in creating new stem cell lines. President Obama later changed that, and, and there's been lots of other sources of funding since then. But this was the dominant political issue of the campaign um, and of uh, the first eight months of uh, George Bush's presidency. Uh, I want to stop for a second and uh, just let you know that there are people walking around with comment cards. Please feel free to, to take one of those. You can fill that out with questions, and Mike will bring those up. So we want some audience participation, too. You don't have to just listen to us having a conversation about this. Um, but in the meantime, maybe, Dr. Murphy, can you tell us a little bit about your work with stem cells today? Sure. Um, so our interest is in basically teaching stem cells how to make the cells and tissues that we want them to be able to make. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, these cells are tremendously powerful, which is both a blessing and a curse. They, they can go in lots of different directions. And if they're not directed in the right way, then you can end up with unintended consequences. You certainly don't want bone to be forming in the brain or vice versa, right? So it sounds a little bit of an odd thing to be thinking about, but it's certainly a possibility with cells that are this broadly um, you know, to have this broader potential. So what we're interested in is controlling what immediately surrounds the stem cells. What are they exposed to? Um, and the simplest example that some may, may think sounds trivial, but actually really is quite important, is stem cells act differently if they're on a soft material or in a soft environment than they do if they're in a stiff environment. And in fact, if they're in a soft environment, they're more likely to become brain tissue than they are if they're in a stiff environment where they're more likely to become bone tissue. So it's an interesting example of a signal that has to be controlled in the stem cells environment. So we're using materials, it turns out, I'm a material scientist, we're using materials to uh, deliver signals to these cells, to try to control what they're seeing, and to try to essentially tell stem cells what to do as they're developing into new tissues. What, what kinds of diseases do stem cells offer potential to treat? It's such a broad range because if one thinks about disease or disorder more broadly, it typically involves a, a defect uh, or a functional problem in some cell type. And because stem cells, again, in principle, can generate all of the cell types that are present in the human body, they can potentially be used to address just about any clinical problem, just about in, in, in concept. Um, now, as it turns out, oftentimes the kinds of diseases or disorders that stem cells are most likely to be used for are the ones that don't have any other options. The most debilitating diseases, those that don't have other potential treatments. Um, and there are a number of those really crossing entirely the clinical spectrum. Um, but the way that they're being applied is oftentimes to life-threatening disease um, that's quite substantial and in rare genetic disorders in children, for example. 
Um, so there's quite a lot of, of activity in those areas. One example of a uh, clinical area that's gotten a lot of focus over the last five years or so is age-related macular degeneration, um, in which there's a, a very large population already worldwide that's affected by this, and it's growing quite substantially all the time, and there isn't a treatment for it. Um, and, and essentially, in these patients, the, the center of the retina is being affected, and therefore their vision is being affected. So if we can generate retinal cells from, from human stem cells, then we can potentially treat these patients. And there's potential not just to slow down the progression of that disease, but ultimately to cure that disease. And we don't say cure very often, as Kelly suggested earlier. That's not, it's sort of like breakthrough. Uh, it's not the kind of term that we like to throw around, but it is reality in this case. There is potential to cure that disease rather than just develop a treatment for it. Kelly, can I just say, clarify one thing? I think there's often confusion between embryonic stem cells and so-called adult stem cells. <clears throat> so by stem cell, we mean a cell that can develop into lots of other kinds of cells. Um, these embryonic stem cells, as Bill said, can develop into any best cell in the body. But all of us have scattered around our body other kinds of stem cells with limited potential. So for example, in the bone marrow, you have a bone marrow stem cell that can turn into white cells and red cells and platelets. And in your brain, you've got a kind of stem cell that can develop into different kinds of just brain tissues. So those kind of stem cells have been used in therapy long before Jamie came along. So many people in the audience, I'm sure, know somebody, or you may even be somebody, who's had a stem cell transplant for leukemia or some other kind of malignancy. Multiple myeloma is the case of this card. Exactly. So these are, these are stem cells that can turn into blood-forming cells. These are not what, what Jamie was involved with and what we're talking about today. And the use of those is relatively non-controversial. They have the same issues and benefits and risks as any other intervention. They don't have this moral status question, and they don't have this total potentiality that Bill described. Can you maybe talk a little bit, what, what is the difference between a blood cell use and, and maybe a autologous or, or otherwise transplant for a blood cancer or, or disease versus what you're using in the lab, what Jamie Thompson started working with 20 years ago? Sure, yeah, and in fact, I mentioned that 20 years ago, I was skeptical about the therapeutic potential of human embryonic stem cells. In fact, the stem cells I was working with at the, at the time were adult-derived stem cell types. And, and my thought was that these, these were far more likely to make their way into clinical practice sooner, which it turned out they did. Um, but they also have more limited potential, which turns out to be important for those cell types. Um, but so, so I think uh, one of the things that we're finding out about some of the cells that are taken from adult patients, uh, not necessarily the hematopoietic stem cells that can make blood, but some of the other adult-derived cell types that are thought to be able to make bone and cartilage and muscle and lots of other uh, tissue types, what we're finding out is that they generally aren't all that effective in doing so, but they do other things that can be clinically quite meaningful. So they produce proteins, for example, and in fact, some of these cells, there's a, there's a cell type that's been commonly referred to as a mesenchymal stem cell. So it has a stem cell moniker. Um, but it turns out that what they do is they produce lots of medicines. They produce proteins that can affect the immune system, that can affect inflammation. And so they've been renamed by one scientist, as, for example, as medicinal signaling cells, MSCs. So it's the same acronym, but an entirely different way of thinking about what the cell type does. 
Um, so when people think of the very broad umbrella of stem cells, it oftentimes does include, as Norm suggested, these whole, this whole sort of pantheon of different cell types. The cell types that Jamie has developed and that we've worked with recently to develop human tissues are really the ones that can indefinitely self-renew and differentiate in a way that is pluripotent, meaning that they can become all of the cell types that are present in the human body. So are there any therapies or treatments currently that came from the original find 20 years ago? And if not, why not? And will we get there? Yeah, so, so the, there are a number of different cell therapies. Cell therapy has actually become quite a popular approach in the pharmaceutical industry, um, particularly, again, to address diseases in which other therapies don't work. Um, so there are lots of cell therapies that are under development. And in the case of stem cell therapies, um, again, with this broad umbrella, there are some 600 plus clinical trials that are ongoing with stem cell-based therapies. The percentage of these that actually use pluripotent derived stem cells, meaning that they came from either human embryonic stem cells or human-induced pluripotent stem cells, is, is a fraction of, those, of that number. Um, and we don't have any therapies that are on the market that are clinically approved and have become standard of care, meaning that they're the first-line treatment for whatever disease somebody has. Um, we do, though, have quite a number of clinical trials that are based on either human embryonic stem cells, initially isolated 20 years ago, or induced pluripotent stem cells that were discovered more recently. Uh, one example, there's a, a spinal cord injury uh, trial that's been ongoing now for, for at least, uh, probably at least 10 years, um, in which human embryonic stem cells are differentiated into what are called oligodendrocyte progenitor cells, OPCs. And these are meant in essence, to help signal in the spinal cord and promote nerves to regrow across a gap in the spinal cord. And there's been some promising results from that trial recently. Um, so it's an example in which the, the use of this kind of an embryonic stem cell derived cell does something that can't be done in any other way. We don't have any, uh, any drug treatments or proteins or genes that can turn on the kind of signaling that these cells can turn on. So that's one of several examples. There are tens of clinical trials that are based on pluripotent stem cells. Yeah, I think uh, I've seen between 16 and 18 yeah. Yeah, at this point. I just want to mention an example of a common stem cell therapy that's in the news all the time. Elite athletes, on a regular basis, we read about them going to various clinics, usually outside the United States, and being injected with some sort of stem cells and getting miraculous improvement with their bone or joint or orthopedic problems. Uh, these are adult stem cells again. Uh, none of them, as far as I know, has ever been shown in any well-designed clinical trial to have benefit. So there may be a placebo effect when these athletes come back and say, I feel much better. But there's no scientific evidence that these very common kind of stem cell transplants are, are really effective. I should mention one thing about clinical trials for those who, who are unfamiliar with how these are organized. A phase one clinical trial is typically a safety trial, meaning that the focus is to determine whether the therapeutic is going to cause harm. And usually those are not blinded trials. Oftentimes these are open trials. So um, they're being used on a patient population, but they're, they're not, the patients are not blinded to the treatment and the clinicians may not be blinded to the treatment, which means that 
there could be some placebo-related effects, um, and it isn't clear whether something is effective in a phase one clinical trial. So sometimes you'll see a phase one clinical trial come through and a patient population will be somehow affected by it, they think, and there'll be a big news release about it. The reality is we don't know whether a therapy is effective until there's been a phase two trial, which is an efficacy trial, hundreds of patients to try to get a sense for whether the therapy really is effective. And in that case, usually the patient doesn't know whether they're getting the treatment or the placebo, and the physician doesn't know whether they're getting the treatment or the placebo. And then after that, there's a phase three trial, which is sort of dose seeking. What's the right dosage of this? And in those, there's oftentimes over a thousand patients, and that's where rare potential side effects might be discovered. So there's a reason why we haven't had therapies make their way all the way through these clinical trials. It's very difficult to identify a treatment that's truly safe, doesn't have unintended side effects, and is effective. I'd say it's pretty remarkable to have such a, a basic biological discovery make it as far as it has in 20 years. It, might not, it sounds like a long time, I think, to, to maybe people who aren't uh, in the lab every day, but it's pretty remarkable to have that kind of timing. I'd just say something about that. Uh, if you look at drugs, uh, these aren't exactly drugs, but if you look at drugs that are introduced into human trials, which is a phenomenally expensive undertaking, it takes on the average half a billion dollars to complete all this, not for any one trial, but with all the ones that fail. So no company or NIH is going to embark on these sorts of adventures unless they, they're really sure it's going to work. And despite that, 19 out of 20 times it fails. That is only 5% of drugs that are ever studied in humans, even though it's, there's a huge barrier to get there. 95% of the time it doesn't work. So it's not surprising that, <laughs> that these stem cell trials are slow in coming. It's just true of all drug development. It's really hard to find something that works and is safe. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go off of a question card because it's also one of the questions I had as well. Um, somebody in the audience wanted to get an opinion on current use of stem cells for joints, knees, hips, um, which ties into the question I wanted to ask. You know, given that I opened the newspaper a couple weeks ago and saw that a global center was advertising stem cell treatments, how can people evaluate that kind of information and know whether or not to trust it? First, they should assume not to trust it. <laughs> because as I say, most of them are going to not be proven. And, it's, and that's been the history so far. But there's a couple simple ways. I mean, the FDA is there to filter out the noise from the signals. And um, so these trials if they're being done by reputable organizations, have to be under FDA auspices uh, with an institutional review board. That's a committee that, in any institution that does this. So the first thing anybody should ask are those two questions. Is this study been reviewed and approved by an institutional review board? And uh, could I see the, <laughs> the confirmation of that? And second, is the FDA overseeing this trial or is the FDA approved this? If somebody's claiming I have a proven effective treatment, of which there's very few so far for embryonic stem cells, uh, show me the FDA approval letter or, or website or on the FDA website where it says that this has been approved. Those two things will filter out virtually all of the fraudulent claims. There are some relatively simple pathways to clinical applications for tissues or even cells that are taken from a patient and then used back in that same patient. And some of these clinics will take advantage of the ability to do this without having 
strict FDA review and approval. Um, and, and so that's part of the challenge is that it doesn't mean that the anecdotes related to some of these treatments aren't true. Sometimes they might be true, but anecdotes are just what they are. They haven't been tested in a large enough population to know whether it was simply the fact that you put a needle into the joint to inject something that caused the therapeutic effect or whether the cells actually did anything at all in those studies. So I think that's a really important um, distinction. Uh, it doesn't mean that the patients aren't seeing something positive happen. You have these elite athletes go to Germany and come back and say, I'm cured. Uh, you know, I had stem cells injected into my spine. They had a needle put in their spine maybe, and there may be lots of reasons why that affected an injury. Those have to be studied in a scientific way to know whether the cells had any effect at all. I just want to say something else about that. The so-called placebo effect of drugs or stem cells is not so much that the placebo has an effect it's that a lot of diseases get better on their own. And so if you're in the placebo group and you got better, people think that somehow the placebo did it. Uh, I mean, I've had four major orthopedic problems in my life, most recently a very painful foot problem. And I went to see our leading foot expert here, a wonderful physician, and she took a lot of x-rays and said I had a bad abnormality in my foot. And she said I could operate on it. And uh, there's an 80% chance it'll get better, or we could just watch it. We just watched it, and six months later it was gone, and I, I can't even remember what foot it was in now. <laughs> and when I went back to see her, I said, you know, if you had operated on that, I would have been eternally grateful. It would have gotten better, <laughs> and I would have been eternally grateful to you, and I would have sent you a case of fine wine every Christmas for the rest of your life. She, she said, if you had told me that then, I would have operated. <laughs> but, but that's, Missed opportunity. If I, had been in, if I had been in a randomized clinical trial and had been randomized to the treatment group and gotten better, people would have said, oh, see, the treatment helped. But it wasn't. It's some, a lot of things get better on their own due to the wisdom of the body. The joint example is a really interesting one because if you look at the clinical trials that have been done in stem cell injections into the joints, very often now the primary outcome of those trials is pain relief, right. not functional improvement. Um, so what they're looking for is, is there a change in the amount of pain that you experience? And so that's patients rating their level of pain. Oftentimes the treatment is associated with some kind of physical therapy. There's lots of reasons why they may be having their pain alleviated, whether it's mental or physical. And then functional outcome is what people really want from these kinds of stem cell injections. You may not have any more cartilage than you had at the beginning of the treatment, but you're experiencing less pain for some reason. Um, so that it, again, it, it wouldn't be clear whether the cells have done much of anything. So, so given that there might be claims of treatment out there that are not supported by FDA or, or science yet, who is regulating stem cell research, and is it an appropriate level of regulation? Uh, well, there's over-regulation, and there's under-regulation, and then there's just right regulation. And so the FDA does over, oversee this. That's one. There's institutional review boards locally. Part of what we uh, recommended when we created the guidelines here and in the, the National Academy of Sciences federal guidelines and the international guidelines the creation of these committees called escrow committees, which stands for Embryonic Stem Cell Research Oversight Committees. And, and one of the reasons for those, so there's those committees also, and you can, virtually all universities and companies that engage in this research have such committees. So a, a customer or a patient can ask, you know, has your research been reviewed? 
One of the reasons for those committees, I just want to go back to the ethics of this for a minute. This issue of um, the moral status of the embryo was a huge deal, and people, reasonable people disagreed about it. But even those who thought that the embryo was not a person and, and that it was not, shouldn't be prohibited to kill it with permission of the, the parents for research purposes, Virtually everybody thought it was different than other kinds of cells. That an embryo, it's not like a white cell or a red cell or a skin cell. And that it deserved to be treated with respect. <clears throat> and what does treating something with respect mean if you can destroy it? And we created a list of rules that we thought took, uh, had respect for people who were concerned about this issue and respect for these embryos. And part of that <clears throat> was to say, that this sort of research should not be done in high school biology classes. It should not be done by people who didn't know what they were doing. That somebody ought to review the credentials of these investigators, make sure they were bona fide investigators, that they had a good scientific plan. So these escrow committees, which are uh, not required, but virtually everybody has them, is a way of making sure that research, including clinical research, that's being done with these cells, has been reviewed by people who take this seriously. So. So there are these there are these committees, and as I said, anybody. So I, I think there's appropriate regulation. I think it's now a little bit excessive because the vast majority of these studies that are being done pose no risks to humans. They may not even involve humans. They're laboratory studies, and you still have to go through these escrow committees. So we sort of overshot the mark there. But it's also underregulated in that entrepreneurs, mostly outside of the United States, are peddling this, this transplant tourism, as it's called, is attracting a lot of people who pay a lot of money for fraudulent therapies that have never been studied. And if these other countries don't regulate it, there's very little to protect the consumer who uh, takes somebody at their word. So two things have happened at the FDA over the last few years that has potentially some effect on regulation of stem cell therapies and, and more generally advanced cell therapies. Uh, one is that the FDA has become more aware of these bad actor clinics that are advertising cures to everything under the sun and injecting something into patients. Um, and oftentimes it isn't clear exactly what it is. Um, and so they're, they're getting more aggressive in trying to address those clinics and ultimately regulate them to shut down these kinds of treatments. Um, the other is there's this new designation, this regenerative medicine advanced therapy designation that can be attached to a product that's, that's making its way through FDA approval. And if the therapy has just the right characteristics, uh, and there are a series of them that, that we don't have enough time to get into, but um, you know, if it's treating a particularly life-threatening condition, and if the cells are taken from a patient in a particular way, et cetera, um, and aren't manipulated excessively, then they may qualify for expedited review by the FDA, and they may qualify for getting into a patient population sooner than we would normally allow this kind of a treatment to get into a patient population. Um, so the FDA is certainly sensitive to wanting to foster development of therapies in the United States rather than having people go overseas and find uh, less regulatory environments. Um, but we're trying to strike that balance, I think. That was one of our questions, is how the regulations on stem cell research in the U.S. compare to regulations elsewhere. I would say generally stricter in the U.S. than elsewhere. Um, one other point about the FDA, uh, contrary to popular opinion, the FDA doesn't regulate drugs. They regulate interstate commerce in drugs. So somebody wants to set up a clinic within one state, and they're, I'm well aware of some 
people who have done that um, can avoid FDA oversight and um, they're at the people, patients are at the mercy of, unless there's some state regulatory process, which there often is not. Dr. Murphy, can you talk a little bit about uh, how stem cells have led to entrepreneurship and maybe job creations? You've mentioned industry a couple of times. You're talking about these companies that you know may be promising things they can't fulfill. Sure, yeah, and the, the uh, industry around stem cells has, has really exploded over the last five or 10 years. Um, every major pharmaceutical company in the world has a stem cell-based discovery program meaning that they're using stem cells and cells and tissues derived from stem cells to test for new drugs and to understand potential toxicity. So that's become a really powerful tool, um, both at big pharmaceutical companies and at smaller startup companies as well. And then the other piece is this regenerative medicine market, the ability to use these cells to treat conditions that really don't have any current treatments at all. Um, and there are a number of companies that are, are establishing themselves in that area. There are some local examples that I think are instructive. Uh, Cellular Dynamics International was founded based on the human-induced pluripotent stem cell discovery from Jamie Thompson's group. That's a company that about eight years or so after its inception was acquired by Fujifilm, a Japanese company, for over $300 million and now includes some 200 employees. Um, and they're developing cells derived from human-induced pluripotent stem cells as tools for drug discovery, for toxin screening, and for therapeutic treatment. So that's one specific example, but there are some 15 to 20 startup companies just in the state of Wisconsin that are developing tools or treatments based on uh, something related to the stem cell discovery. And it strikes me that that brings talent into the state and, and is a, a revenue generator. Yeah, it certainly is. It's, it generates revenue. Uh, it also, you know, it's interesting because oftentimes when we live in the Midwest, we're sensitive to the idea that we'll develop something here, we'll grow it, and at some point an entity from the coasts or from another country will come in and swoop it up and take it away. Uh, that's not happening in this case. So Fujifilm, as I mentioned, bought Cellular, Cellular Dynamics International. CDI is still based at UW Research Park uh, in Madison. Um, they still have effectively the same number of employees they had at the acquisition. And the, the rationale that Fujifilm has had for keeping CDI as uh, significant size and, and with the number of employees that it has is that this is the base of talent that they want to engage with. They see value in staying in the Madison area and staying in Wisconsin. And that, again, it, it, it isn't a unique experience. There are lots of different companies that are uh, engaging with strategic partners from the east and west coast or from outside the country, having that money come into Wisconsin and to stay in Wisconsin, continue to invest. Yeah, and I think I just came across a figure of about 635 faculty, staff, and students are, are currently working on stem cell research on this campus alone. Certainly. So it certainly a, remains an educational opportunity, too. Yeah, it's a, that's one of the things that people oftentimes don't think all that much about, but... Um, Jamie's discovery, although it's led to lots of scientific advances and commercial advances as well, one of the legacies that is hard to quantify but might be the biggest legacy ultimately of that discovery is the number of leaders in this field that we have trained and seeded the world with. Um, we've had, we have currently uh, at least 250 graduate students that are training in laboratories becoming PhDs in the area of stem cell research or related disciplines. 
So we're leading the world in training these people who are going to make the next set of discoveries, and it just amplifies from there. Speaking of the next set of discoveries, Dr. Foss, can you talk a little bit about some of the issues that maybe we're grappling with now as new technologies related to stem cells emerge? I don't, I don't know that there are any new issues. I think, as I say, the, the, the issues that were hot in uh, 20 years ago are not so hot anymore. That is, there's every single poll of every demographic group you can look at, uh, Republicans, Democrats, evangelicals even, are supportive of this technology. So it's, it's no longer contested um, in, the, in the public domain. So what we have now is just another biotechnology that has potential benefits and risks and that therefore needs to be subject to all the rules and regulations and ethical principles that guide human subjects research in general. I don't think there are any new ethical issues. This one issue that seemed so um, worrisome 20 years ago about this, uh, what I call the help let me out of here syndrome, these animals with brains and, and whether or not those brains were functioning, seems to have receded. I mean, the neurobiologists have uh, concluded that there's very little evidence that such chimeras, as they're called, are experiencing um, human experiences. So there's, there's less concern about that than there was. So I, I don't know that there's any new issues ahead of us that uh, remains to be seen, but I think we're now dealing with another biomedical technology that has unknown benefits and risks and needs to be studied in the same way that we study all new biomedical technologies. Question from the audience is, have there been any lawsuits since the discovery of stem cells? And if so, by whom? Um, there have been suits against uh, regu against court decisions against against regulated by investigators and so on against uh, decisions that have purported to slow this down, and which have generally prevailed. But I'm I'm sorry to say I'm not familiar. I may not be the most educated person on that. Bill, are you aware of any individual lawsuits or uh, the only the the particular category of lawsuit that comes to mind is that the discover the initial discovery of embryonic stem cells was challenged by an organization that essentially uh, was arguing that this was obvious in view of prior discoveries. This is a patent lawsuit. This is a patent lawsuit. Yeah, right. So in essence saying that, you know, because Jamie had already done this in primates, the discovery in humans was a next logical step. It's not something that should have been viewed as an invention that's patentable. Um, and, and I think in, in general, those lawsuits have kind of dragged on and on and on, but, but this is not uncommon when a breakthrough is made. Yeah, so there were lawsuits about whether President Bush's prohibition on funding or President Obama's uh, allowing that funding, whether those were constitutional and whether they violated other laws, but I'm not aware of individual lawsuits. Take another question from the audience. Uh, why didn't Dr. Thompson win the Nobel Prize? Yeah. Uh, yet. <laughs> yeah, Jamie's not done. Right? So we, still, we, still work, we still collaborate with Jamie, and some of the questions that he's asking now are uh, certainly uh, poised to make their own next level breakthroughs. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, give up the ghost on Jamie winning a Nobel Prize at some point. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard more than a few people say that this may be one of the most important discoveries in the history of biomedical, in the history of science, in the history of biology, um, because of the, as Bill said, the, the fields that it opens up. It, it has, it's not one discovery. It's going to allow hundreds and thousands of them. So I, I, I would look forward to him getting a Nobel Prize. I'd be surprised if he didn't at some point. 
There was a Nobel Prize awarded for the discovery of the induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, and that went to a Japanese scientist, Dr. Yamanaka, who published <coughs> concurrently with Jamie. Um, science, as much as it's um, vulnerable to politics, has its own politics as well. <laughs> so, no yep. Um, I want to make sure we get to, to this question too, Dr. Murphy. Um, you talked a little bit about personalized medicine with stem cells, and, and I think we've covered most of the ground, but somebody did want to know how close we are to having personalized medicine being mainstream. After Bill mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well. And would it be available to everybody was the secondary question. Well, that's, that's a much harder question to answer, but I think um, the, to the first one, how close are we? There are examples currently in which uh, someone might take cells from a tumor from a patient and treat them with three different types of treatment regimen in a dish to try to outside the body, basically in a lab, to try to understand which uh, drug candidate that tumor might be most susceptible to. Um, so, so that's in, in ways personalized medicine. It's maybe more primitive than what we had in mind ultimately for personalized medicine, but it's an example of where it's already being used. Um, what I think we envision as a next step is, you know, one example is a project we have ongoing with metastatic melanoma. So uh, melanoma tends to metastasize to the liver and to the brain. And so what we can do outside the body, now that we can create liver and brain tissue from humans, is we can generate these tissues on a millimeter scale, these tiny little tissues. We can seed them with melanoma that comes from a patient and try to get a sense for what drugs might stop that melanoma from metastasizing to the liver, taking root and growing in these mini livers and these mini brains. Um, so that's an example of something that could be rolled out within the coming five years or so. That's, that's realistic in the relatively near term. Um, so, so I think it's sort of a progressive scale of rolling out more and more of these personalized medicines. What limits it being available to a much broader scope of the population in some ways is cost, right? So if we, if we want to generate personalized tissues from everyone in this room, um, we would have to get don- donated cells or tissues from every patient in this room, reprogram them, differentiate them into the tissue types of interest, and then test the tissue types of interest. There's time, there's cost, and it becomes impractical and frankly would probably break our healthcare system. So at the moment, what's more practical is to try to treat demographics, to try to take subsets of the population and say, well, they're much more likely to be treatable by drug class A than drug class B. And you're seeing lots of pharma companies doing this kind of micro-targeting of patient populations. I just want to say, parallel with the stem cell field is all the research in uh, genetic technology, instead of creating a stem cell line that might cure Parkinson's or diabetes, is to try to inject the gene into cells that you already have that will make the hormone or the protein that's missing. And that area has been regulated by the FDA, but also by a committee called the Recombinant Advisory Committee at NIH, which I had the opportunity to serve on for a number of years. And that's in the process of being more or less disbanded, or at least... uh, on the grounds that, well, it's been around for 20 years and nothing horrible's happened, and the FDA can handle this, and local libraries can handle it. And I must say, I'm in a group of a bunch of people who have served on that committee who are a little uneasy about that, uh, because the expertise in that area doesn't exist on most li- when, an, when the Human Subjects Committee reviews one of those kind of studies, pretty much the only person in the institution who knows 
what's going on is the investigator, and it's hard to find other people who can, who don't have a conflict of interest who can review it. And that's what this so-called RAC committee, Recombinant Advisory Committee, did. Um, so that's an area of what I'm a little bit concerned about, maybe under-regulation of genetic technology. It's not the same as stem cells, but it's, they are often combined, or they may be combined. Well, we are at time, everyone. Uh, we want to thank you very much for being here and, and asking such great questions. Um, if you do want to learn a little bit more, the University of Wisconsin-Madison has a website uh, dedicated to stem cells on the 20th. There's a really great um, oral history there uh, from the Mortgage Institute for Research and also links to places like the National Institutes of Health where you can learn about ongoing clinical trials and get some more information about how to evaluate some of the treatments that, that might be promised. But thank you all. Enjoy the rest of your festival. Thank you for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Shows like The Corner Table, The Mad Splainers, and Cap Times Talks. Be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in.